Yeah, hey, if you got uh, your Bibles, we're in Joshua chapter 10 this morning. Uh, we're looking at this great story, uh, the sun standing still, the longest day. I thought I'd call it maybe the longest message, but I didn't want to freak you out. So let's pray as we come to God's Word. Lord, we just thank you for the chance, uh, the opportunity this morning, and we want to take advantage of it to meet with you, to worship you, uh, to fellowship with our brothers and sisters in Christ to spend time in the Word together. Thankful, Lord, that we get to come to your table today to celebrate communion. And so, God, we just ask as we come to your Word this morning that your Spirit would speak to us, that, Lord, uh, you have things that you want to say to every heart here and every mind. And, Lord, we just come before you to open up our hearts and say, Lord, uh, plant your Word, plant the seed of your Word, pierce our hearts, we pray. And so, God, we just ask your blessing on this time in Jesus' name. Amen. Sweet. So, yeah, as we pick up this story of Joshua, the children of Israel, entering the land of Canaan and taking their inheritance into the Lord, um, this chapter begins with a bit of insight into everything that was going on politically and militarily as they were continuing to conquer land and and uh, take hold of that which God had for them. And as we pick it up here, it's kind of interesting. There's this coalition of five kings that have come together and they've been organizing. They've seen that Israel's already defeated two cities, the great defeat of Jericho, the defeat of I.E. And uh, these kings were planning their attack, but they made a decision that they were not going to attack Israel. We're going to see here, they're going to attack a city called Gibeon, just 10 kilometers from Jerusalem. And Gibeon, as we saw last week in chapter 9, was this city, this group of people who had betrayed their alliances with the cities around them and their Canaanite brothers and sisters. They had entered into agreement with peace with the children of Israel. They had done so through deception. But they had entered into this covenant relationship with Israel And they had pledged to Israel that they would serve them and they would uh, serve the Lord. And so now these uh, cities around Gibeon were hungry to regain that which was lost. (laughs) Isn't that the way the enemy likes to work? To regain the ground that he loses. And um, yeah, here Gibeon had, you know, surrendered to Israel. And so to bring retribution... These five kings gathered their armies together uh, to make Gibeon pay for defecting from the alliance. And so we just read about what happened here. Let's check it out in verse 1, how the animosity was awakened of these former friends. It says this, As soon as Adonai Zedek, that means the king of righteousness, isn't that crazy? That's That's the title this king took. As soon as Adonai Zedek, the king of Jerusalem, heard how Joshua had captured I.E. and devoted it to destruction, doing to I.E. and its king as he had done to Jericho and its king, and how the inhabitants of Gibeon had made, a, had made peace with Israel and were among them, he feared greatly because Gibeon was like a great city, like one of the royal cities, and because it was greater than I.E. and all its men were warriors." So Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, sent to Hoham, the king of Hebron, Piram, the king of Jarmuth, Japhia, the king of Lachish, and to Debir, king of Eglon, saying, Come up to me and help me, and let us strike Gibeon, for it has made peace with Joshua and with the people of Israel. 
Then the five kings of the Amorites, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, and the king of Eglon gathered their forces and went up with all of their armies, and they encamped against Gibeon and made war against it. So we see here all of a sudden this city, Gibeon, this group of people, the city of Gibeon that we had looked at and studied last week, quickly found themselves surrounded by enraged neighbors, formerly friendly neighbors. Maybe you had some of those. Formerly friendly neighbors were now enraged. And, you know, Gibeon was just 10 kilometers from Jerusalem. So it gives you a little bit of just uh, the geography, a picture of that, that this city was really close. Like Jerusalem and Gibeon truly were neighbors. And these armies, the armies of Jerusalem and all of these cities had heard about the exploits of Joshua the exploits of the children of Israel. They had heard of the, the defeats of Jericho and Ai, but they were not interested in battling the new tough guy on the block. So they turned on their neighbors because they were afraid of Israel. And so uh, these kings gather for vengeance on the city, in, the city of Gibeon. Now on Gibeon's part, they did this. They banked on a new relationship they had entered into a newly formed relationship with Joshua and Israel. So let's read on, verse 6. And the men of Gibeon sent to Joshua at the camp in Gilgal, saying, Do not relax your hand from your servants. Come up to us quickly and save us and help us, for all the kings of the Amorites who dwell in the hill country are gathered against us. So they, make the, they pick up the phone, they call Joshua. Joshua, you got to bail us out, man. We're in trouble. We're your servants. Help us. And now I just think about this. If it was up to me, if I was in Joshua's shoes after the Gibeonites had used deception to bring me into relationship with them, um, yeah, I just wonder how I might respond. How would you respond to this call for help? Not only that, Gibeon was in the mountains. I mean, like Jerusalem was down in the valley, or sorry, where the uh, Israelites were, were in Gilgal down in the valley towards the Dead Sea. There was uh, a 40-kilometer journey. It was 4,000 feet of ascent up to Gibeon. And uh, it was all uphill. And here's this city calling for military protection from uh, Joshua on the basis of this newly formed covenant. So you just think, well, what would you do? What would I do? Well, thankfully for Gibeon, Joshua isn't like me because I wouldn't have gone. <laughs> uh, instead, he's a great picture of Jesus here, I think. It says this. He said, he said this. Uh, the Gibeonites said, don't relax your hand. Joshua, don't relax your hand. It makes me think of what Jesus said. He's, what did he say about his hand and those who are in his hand? You know, Jesus doesn't relax his hand. He said, those who are in my hand whom the Lord's given to me, they cannot be snatched from my hand. So let's read what Joshua did. Verse 7. So Joshua went up from Gilgal, he and all the people of war with him, and all the mighty men of valor. And the Lord said to Joshua, do not fear them, for I have given them into your hands. Not a man of them shall stand before you. So here's Joshua. Joshua gets the call to come and rescue this city, and he sets out on this rescue mission uh, to the same people who had lied to him to the same people who had used deception to bring themselves into a relationship with him, and they were now far from him. There was distance. It was all uphill for Joshua. And what does Joshua do? He goes to rescue them. 
And I just think, isn't that like Jesus? Right there, isn't that like Jesus? Jesus comes to our rescue. We're undeserving. We're unworthy. We've been faithless. Uh, We've maybe relied on deception, and He's faithful, and He comes to our rescue even when it's all uphill for Him. He does all the work. We just call on Him, and He comes. Even when we've separated ourselves by, by great distance, and it's all uphill for Jesus, He comes to our rescue. And so when the Gibeonites found themselves in trouble, they believed in the relationship that they had with Joshua, and they called on Him to help. And, you know, I just, I read that and I think, hey, that's what we need to do as God's people, don't we? To call on him in our battles. So verse 9, Joshua came upon them suddenly, having marched all night from Gilgal. Now, that's crazy to me. That's a 40-kilometer journey overnight. Twice I've, you know, I've never done a marathon or anything like that, but twice I've hiked 30 kilometers in a day. And I tell you what, I paid dearly for it both times I did it. And I think, wow, 40K in a night, and this is like a blitzkrieg. Joshua and the army uh, travel this distance, ascend 4,000 feet, and can you imagine going straight into battle after a journey like that? But that's what happened. It made me think of the Germans in World War II. You know, they used blitzkrieg, and what they would do is they'd feed their soldiers with methamphetamines so that they were like ready to rock. Even in the midst of exhaustion, they could battle through and fight. But Israel, what kept Israel going on this march and then right straight into battle? Uh, They knew this, that God had promised that victory was assured that not one man from these conglomeration of armies, this uh, group of armies was going to be able to stand against them and victory was assured. And that's what needs to keep us going when exhaustion sets in, you guys. When we're tired and we're serving the Lord, maybe, or we're just worn down in life, we need to lay hold of the promises of God like this army of Israel did and and keep going. Now check out verse 10. And the Lord threw them into a panic before Israel, who struck them with a great blow at Gibeon and chased them the way of the ascent of Beth Horon and struck them as far as... Azka and Makeda, you know, some of these names in the Bible, eh? you got to just, I get to stumble over them all the time and you just smirk and laugh at me. You know, I read this and I think, you know, how often do we as human beings ask this question of the Lord? You know, God, why would you allow this to happen to me? Why is this going on, Lord? How did I get myself in this situation? How did this happen? And you read this story and, and maybe you go, you know, Lord, why would you allow these five Amorite kings to attack the Gibeonites and all of this stuff to happen? But what we're going to see happen here is this. In one single battle, God is going to use this to take out all five of these kings. And it's going to lead to an entire conquest of the southern part of the land of Canaan. Literally, Joshua was driving his army right through the center of the land of Canaan. Deep in. It's like Divided. It's truly like a World War II blitzkrieg move, man. Divide, quickly move into the middle, and then, you know, strategically, it was, it was brilliant. And Joshua, you know, as we look back, even consider chapter 9, had made this, this big mistake that he had entered into a peace treaty with the Gibeonites. He had failed to ask the Lord for counsel, but God was able to work in the midst of that. He was able, as, as Joshua just continued to commit his way to the Lord, God was able to bring good from a situation that the enemy was using and seeking to take advantage of. 
And God can do the same for us when we, when we go, God, what's going on here? The enemy appears to be taking advantage of me. I've been deceived and I bought it. I, I failed to check with you for counsel. And, and Lord, you got to help me. And God can work in the midst of those things. And this is what he does for Israel. It says here that he threw the enemy into a great panic. Isn't that awesome? Right off the hop here. When God's people call on Jesus, I just think this. When we call on Jesus, what does the enemy do? He panics. Now, verse 11. As they fled before Israel while they were going down the ascent of Beth Horon, the Lord threw down large stones from heaven on them as far as Azkah, and they died. There were more who died because of the hailstones than the sons of Israel killed with the sword. Isn't this crazy? These are these epic Bible stories where you're like, wow, God, you did what? It's interesting, Beth, Beth Horan means uh, the house of hollowness. <laughs> what a name, eh? This is, was their way of escape. This was their way out from the attack of, of Israel was to flee to the house of hollowness. And what did God do? He opened up the artillery of heaven, hailstones, came down and it was a storm from heaven, these miraculous hailstones. It's just, you know, crazy to think about some of these Bible stories sometimes and go, wow, how did God direct the hailstones so that they hit only the enemies? <laughs> only the enemies of the children of God, but that's what happened. And as Joshua and the army was pursuing them, uh, behind them in the direction that the sun would have been setting to their, to their backs, they would have been uh, marching forward into darkness as the sun was making its descent. And in front of them, I think the moon was probably making an early appearance. Someone said to me this morning, did you, we were saying it during prayer, did you guys see the moon last night? I didn't, I didn't see it. But you know how the moon starts to come up often this time of year, you see it in the sky before the sun's even set. Well, this is the scene this night. And Joshua knew that there were just a couple more hours in this day. They had marched through the night. They had battled all day. They were defeating the enemy. They were on the run. God was striking them down with hailstones. And as Joshua and the army continued to pursue, this enemy was going to be in the position where in just a, probably you know, two or three hours, they were going to be safe under the cover of darkness. And so the time to finish the job was now while they were on the run. And it's in these circumstances that Joshua dared to ask something that's just so unimaginable to me. Look at verse 12. At that time, Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord gave the Amorites over to the sons of Israel. And he said in the sight of Israel, Sun, stand still at Gibeon and the moon in the valley of Ajalon. And the sun stood still, and the moon stopped, until the nation took vengeance on their enemies. Is this not written in the book of Jasher? The sun stopped in the midst of heaven and did not hurry to set for about a whole day. There has been no day like it before or since when the Lord heeded the voice of a man, for the Lord fought for Israel. Now, isn't this amazing? Like, I just think, you know, you could spend a lot of time discussing this. I'm not going to do that this morning because, look, we just, we're a church. We believe in the Word of God. By faith, we believe these stories. We believe God did these things. And this is amazing. You know, in ancient, in a lot of ancient cultures all around the world, old societies actually record in their oral history 
it was handed down that there was an unusual day in times past when the sun stood still on that day. For those on the other side of the earth, like it's in Mexican history that there was a long day of darkness when the sun should have risen. It never came up on the other side of the earth here. So this was an unusually long day. And of course, I just think this, the Amorites, the Canaanites were known for their worship of what? The sun. They worshiped the moon, man. It was in the cover of darkness that all of their strange worship practices under the light of the moon were happening. They worshiped the sun during the day. But their worship of creation, worshiping the sun and moon, never resulted in a prayer of faith like Joshua gave to the creator of the sun and the moon. And it's just Amazing that why shouldn't the son that was worshipped in the land instead of God serve as his tool of judgment against the inhabitants of the land? That's what I think. They gave to the son, the Amorites, these, these kings and these cities gave to the sun and the moon that which was due to the living God. And so God used the sun and moon to bring punishment to them, to bring forward their destruction. You know, if you don't know Jesus, if you don't know Jesus, God will actually do this. He will use the thing that you worship to bring forward your destruction, to punish you, to discipline you. That's what he did here with the, with the sun and, and the moon. This day was ex- extended. It's amazing. And we know, we know this. The sun actually doesn't set, right? We recognize that. Like the earth is spinning and rotating around the sun. The sun actually doesn't set. It's terminology that we use, but the earth is turning away. But uh, so I just think, wow, it's probably, you know, the earth just stopped. Isn't that amazing to just think? It just stopped in its course for a period of time here as the creator of the universe moved heaven and earth to help his people. And we see some things about Joshua in this situation that I think that are helpful for you and I. First one is this. I mean, that just that Joshua believed the promises of God. He believed God's promise to him. The Lord said to him, Do not fear them, for I've given them into your hands. Not a man of them shall stand before you. And and Joshua armed himself. He had a sword, but he armed himself with the promises of the Lord. He said, God has said it. We're going to defeat these guys. Not one of them shall be left to stand. Lord, we need more daylight. And I think this about Joshua too, that in the midst of this, Joshua did his absolute best. Like you think about what this guy did before he sought the Lord in faith in this, with this prayer. He traveled all night. He led the people all night. He battled all day, fighting through the daylight hours. So he had the promises of God. He was armed with the promises of God, but then he did everything within his power to see that promise fulfilled. And then he called on the Lord. You know, Jesus said this, without me, you can do what? Nothing. No thing. Joshua called on the Lord. James said this, you do not have because you do not ask. And when you ask, you ask with wrong motives. Call on me, the Lord says. Now I think about this story and it makes you think about what Jesus said. That he said, he said this, truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say move to this mountain, move from here to there and it will move and nothing will be impossible for you. It's amazing this prayer. Sun stands still, moon stay in your place and God heeds the voice of a, of a man. That's what 
the scripture tells us. So Joshua calls on the Lord. He does his best. He's armed with the promises of God, but he also does this. He spoke in faith. He spoke in faith. He said in front of the whole nation, spoke in faith in front of others. And, and that's like a risky thing. I'm sure you've all found yourself in that place where you're like, boy, if I speak here, I'm really putting things on the line. I, I, I could look really stupid if I speak this forward and, and something does not come out of this. You know, what if, what if I say this prayer, sun stands still and moon, you know, and nothing, nothing happens. And was that possible? Yeah, it was possible. But faith speaks. He was armed with the promises of God. You know, it's interesting that the Bible actually tells us that believing in your heart that Jesus is Lord isn't enough. That you must believe in your heart, but your mouth has to speak, Romans 10, verse 9 and 10. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you'll be saved. There has to be a word of faith spoken because the Bible says it's with the heart that one believes and is justified and it's with the mouth one confesses and is saved. So here's these, just these great pictures of Joshua. He's armed with the promises of God. He does everything that's within his power that he can do. He calls on the Lord and he's a man of faith. He speaks words of faith and the Lord miraculously worked the longest day in history. Now check out verse 15. It says this. Actually, I'm going to read through to 21. I'll just make one quick comment on verse 15, but it says this. So Joshua returned and all Israel with him to the camp at Gilgal. Five times in this passage, Gilgal is mentioned. And uh, this is a picture, as we've seen, of the resurrection life. Israel was truly in that place. They were encamped at the right spot at this point in time in this conquering of the land. Now, verse 16 says this. These five kings fled and hid themselves in the cave at Makeda, and it was told Joshua, the five kings have been found hidden in the cave at Makeda. And Joshua said, roll large stones against the mouth of the cave and set men by it to guard them. But do not stay there yourselves. Pursue your enemies, attack their rear guard. Do not let them enter their cities, for the Lord your God has given them into your hand. When Joshua and the sons of Israel had finished striking them with a great blow until they were wiped out, and when the remnant that remained of them had entered into the fortified cities, then all the people returned safely to Joshua at the camp, in the camp at Makeda. Not a man moved his tongue against any of the people of Israel. So we just see as, as these armies are being pursued and they're fleeing for their lives, the five kings find a place of hiding. Uh, they go into a cave, and Joshua finds out they're there. He, he secures the cave so that they're imprisoned inside there. And, and then he and the troops continue the pursuit of uh, these armies to mop things up because this was an operation of total victory. They were convinced of this. By this point in time, Like you can just imagine how confident you would be if the Lord stopped the sun when you uh, had said a prayer. You're like, okay. We got this, boys. Let's go. And I love that at the end of verse 21, it says, no one would move his tongue against the people of Israel. The enemy was silenced. Totally silenced. The Lord had completely shut their mouths. And 
An enemy who has a mouth shut, boy, is a defeated enemy. You just know that if you've played any sports before, you know, when you're battling the enemy and fighting against another team, there's a lot of things that are said. But I'll tell you what, when one team knows that they're defeated, there's not much left to say from those who are defeated. So verse 22, then Joshua said, open the mouth of the cave and bring those five kings out to me from the cave. And they did so and brought those five kings out to him from the cave, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, the king of Eglon. And when they brought those kings out to Joshua, Joshua summoned all the men of Israel and said to the chiefs of the men of war who had gone with him, come near, put your feet on the neck of these kings. Then they came near and put their feet on their necks. And Joshua said to them, do not be afraid or dismayed. Be strong and courageous for thus the Lord will do to all your enemies against whom you fight. Five kings are all that's left of these armies, five armies. And they're brought out of this cave as if uh, defeat wasn't humiliating enough. Joshua made them do this, made them lie in the dust of the earth with their faces in the ground, uh, lying there. And then he ordered some of his chiefs, his captains, to put their foot on the neck of these defeated kings. And it's like a really public display here. You go, wow, this is kind of, you know, this is, these things are kind of foreign to us. I got a little bit of a George Floyd picture in my head, obviously. There's a foot on a neck here. And, and you know, why did Joshua do this public display? That's what I wonder. Well, it was so this, that all of Israel would know that this victory was the Lord's victory. The Lord had said, do not, do not be afraid or dismayed. Be strong and courageous, for thus the Lord will do to all of your enemies against whom you fight. There were seven nations that needed to be defeated in the, the, the land of Canaan. Just Jericho and Ai had been taken at this point. But the Lord says, you need to know this. As you've done to this nation, this group of nations, you will do to every nation in this land. And I just think about this for us as an application. You know, church... The Lord Jesus has fought for you and I. He went to a hill. He climbed a hill, packing a cross to Calvary, and he won. He put his foot on the neck of sin. He put his other foot on the neck of death. Jesus fought for you, and Jesus won, and he will do so to every one of your enemies. Just think about that, the enemies that you have in your life, habits, sins, every weakness. Jesus says, like I put my foot on sin, like I put my foot on death, so I will do to every one of your enemies. Victory is assured for the children of God. The promise that God gave his children was this, do not be afraid or dismayed, be strong and courageous, for the Lord will do to all of your enemies who fight for you. Who, who, who did this? The, the captains of the armies had their foot on the neck of these enemies, but whose victory was it? It was the Lord's victory. But it's amazing as I think about this, what did the people of God have to do? 
They had to fight. They had to fight. For thus says the Lord, uh, for thus says the Lord, the Lord will do to all of your enemies against whom you fight. You have to fight. You know, the life of following Jesus is a life of faith, but it's a life of battles. Entering the promised land, entering into the life of promise is a life of fighting. You have to declare war on everything that opposes Jesus. Everything. You know, wouldn't you like to have your foot on the neck of whatever it is in your life? To put your foot on the neck of anxiety, wouldn't that be awesome? To put your foot on the neck of pride? To put your foot on the the neck of lust? To, To put your foot on the neck of a critical complaining spirit? To put your foot on the neck of your fears? To put your foot on the neck of your envy or your selfish ambition? Or to put your foot on the neck of anger? Wouldn't that be awesome? Or to put your foot on the neck of your sharp tongue? You have to fight. You have to declare war on sin. And Joshua got a word from the Lord. He said, you know, victory is assured. And you know what Joshua did? He was willing to go all night and all day and to ask for more time to get the victory. He did everything within his power to participate in the promises of God so that God would win the victory on his behalf. He marched uphill. He covered a lot of ground. He fought all day to see the Lord bring victory. You know, I just want to encourage you, declare war on whatever it is. Declare war that, you know, and know this, that Jesus has already secured victory through his death and through his resurrection. Now let's read on. We're going to wrap it up pretty quick here. Verse 26. And afterward, Joshua struck them and put them to death, and he hanged them on five trees. And they hung on the trees until evening. But at the time of the going down of the sun, Joshua commanded. It was a long day. He's ready for bed. Joshua commanded that they took them down from the trees and threw them into the cave where they had hidden themselves, and they set large stones against the mouth of the cave, which remain there to this very day. So five kings hanging on five trees, not a pretty sight, but our king hung on a tree for us, so I don't feel too bad for them. I'm just going to say that. We want to be compassionate about that. My king hung on a tree to save me, (laughs) gave his life on that tree. Joshua hung these five kings on a tree. And, and, and yeah, I guess maybe you'd say, wow, that seems a little bit over the top, you know, that before these dead bodies, they're already dead, that these bodies would be hung up on a tree. But this is a picture of complete victory of God's people over, the enemy, over their enemy. That's what this is. Uh, leaving the enemy hiding in a cave. Imagine if they just left him in there, roll the stones in there, just leave him in there. They can starve to death inside that cave. Maybe that would have been an option, but that would have only been a partial victory. There needed to be a public display of the victory of God's people over their enemy. And see, the truth is for victory to be fully realized, that which is hidden in the dark has to be brought out into the light. Doesn't the Bible tell us that? That God will bring all deeds of darkness into the light? It's necessary 
for all things to come into the light, for there to be victory. And it has to be hung up and displayed as fruitless. This is lifeless. <laughs> you know, it's interesting that we can pursue the enemy, but then allow, I just think there's a good picture here, allow the king to live hidden in a cave. Well, that's okay, we'll just leave him alone. Chop everything else down. Wipe out the enemy here. But for total victory, the king has to be killed. There has to be the king of sin, whatever that area is, you know. Pride, envy, lust, sharp tongue, selfish ambition, whatever. It's got to be brought into the light. It's got to be displayed. And everybody needs to know that it's been put to death. We can't tuck sin away and let it live, hide it in a cave, so to speak. The enemy had to be brought into the light. The foot had to be put on the neck. They needed to be slayed. They needed to be hung up publicly on that tree. The Bible says, cursed is anyone who's hung on a tree. <laughs> That's what Jesus did for us, hung on a tree. It's interesting, there's a reversal here. These guys started in a cave, and they ended up on a tree. Jesus went to a tree, died on that tree, and was buried in a cave, <laughs> in a tomb but was brought back to life. So Joshua and the armies, they, they piled the stones in front of this cave. The lifeless bodies were thrown into the cave. And, and here's another monument in the land speaking of the power and the victory of the Lord. I want to read to you just verse uh, 28. It's not going to be on the screen, but I'll... Or sorry, 27. I should get in the right chapter. 27, but at that time, the going down of the sun, Joshua commanded, and they took them down from the trees, threw them into the cave where they had hidden themselves, and then they set large stones against the mouth of the cave, which remained there to this day. Verse 28, as for Makeda, Joshua captured it on that day and struck it and its king with the edge of the sword. He devoted to destruction every person in it. He left none remaining. And he did to the king of Makeda just as he had done to the king of Jericho. The rest of the chapter goes on. I'm not going to read the whole thing. I encourage you to go home and read it today. It goes on to, to tell us an inventory, a list of the kings and the, the cities that Joshua went in uh, to have victory on for, after the defeat of these five kings. After the defeat of these five kings, it led the children of Israel to capture all of the southern cities, and they're listed here. And, and the victory of God's people, the door for victory was opened up by the slain of these five kings. You know, in the Bible, the number five is the number of grace, actually. Whenever you come across, across number five in the Bible, it's always, there's always a picture of grace in there. And it isn't amazing that that God did this, he acted, he worked grace on behalf of his people so quickly that just as we saw last week, they had entered into this covenant with someone, with a group of people, the Gibeonites, they never should have done it. They never consulted the Lord. But in the midst of it, God poured in his grace and it led to an amazing victory for the children of God. And so the rest of the chapter goes on and recounts these cities that they won victory over and then look at verse 43, just the last verse we'll look at. It says this, Then Joshua returned, and all Israel with him, to the camp at Gilgal. And I just love this picture that after the victory, where did they go? They went back to resurrection ground, church. They went back, instead of 
arm enough to go to attack somebody else. They went back to the ground of victory that God had given them when they first entered the land and they encamped there. And you know, as I look at this, this chapter, I just think this, isn't it amazing how God will move heaven and earth for his people? God will move heaven and earth for his people. And he did that in sending his son, Jesus. Not just in stopping the sun for one day and the moon for one day. He sent Jesus to deal with our enemy forever. The enemy of sin and death. And so I want to just leave you with this encouragement today. Do not be afraid or dismayed. Be strong and courageous, for thus the Lord will do to all of your enemies whom you fight. Fight, church. Fight the enemies. Fight the enemies. This morning, we're going to come to the Lord's table, and I'm going to invite uh, Barbara and Beth to come. And uh, Greg and Julian are going to uh, bring around little communion cups and pieces of bread for you that are sealed in there. And I was really excited about this. I don't know. I love, I love coming to the Lord's table and us getting to do this. And um, just thinking about this fact that last week, uh, Debbie and I were chatting briefly after the service and she, was, she said she had a cool thought and I just thought it was so cool about. We talked about the Gibeonites when they made their covenant with Israel, they, they shared with them moldy bread and wine from their basically empty wine sacks. You guys go ahead. So they're going to bring around the communion. They'll put it on the table for you, okay? So we're not all touching it. And, uh, you know, when God's people entered into a covenant with the enemy, what did they do? They ate together. It happened right in the garden. Very first time Adam and Eve were deceived by the devil, what did they do? They, they shared a meal together. And what we see Jesus doing in the New Testament so often was sitting down with people and sharing a meal with them. And you know, we'd hardly call this a meal today. But as we come to the Lord's table, what we're doing is we're participating with the Lord. You know, when we've entered into relationship with Him, the first thing He wants to do is eat with us. And our covenant relationship is based on the work of the cross, on Jesus' death, His blood that was shed on there, His body that was broken, His life that was poured out for the sins of the world. On that cross, He died. He was buried, placed in a tomb. And on the third day, the Bible tells us he, raised, he was raised from the dead. And the Scripture says that if we'll confess Jesus as Lord and believe in our hearts that God raised Him from the dead, we will be saved. We will be saved. But one of the things that we enter into that we want to do when we come to a place of salvation, thanks, Julian, is to eat together with the Lord. And that's what this is a picture of. You know, this is a picture of remembering the cross and remembering that which Jesus did for us. But it's also this. It, it looks forward to a time when we're going to sit at a banquet meal together with the Lord, and we're going to eat. We're going to celebrate Jesus' victory, and we're going to celebrate our relationship with Him. And so, 
These are kind of funny little cups. They got a double seal there, so good luck. You know, if you can't find your way in there, use your teeth. <laughs> but uh, we're going to sing. Let's sing first, okay? I'm going to invite you to stand. I'm so thankful that we can sing. If our government tries to tell us we can't sing, I don't know what I'm going to do. So they're saying in other places. Won't get a good response from me. That's happening, right? In California, they've told the churches they're not allowed to sing when they gather. That's new. It was instituted this week. So we want to stand. It's part of what God's people do when they come together. Singing is necessary. The, the Ephesians tells us this, that it's a sign of God's Spirit at work in our midst that we would declare in song the praises of the Lord. And so we want to worship Jesus in song as we come to the table with Him and partake with Him, okay? So these ladies are going to lead us.
Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Jesus, we just thank you that you defeated death, that you defeated sin. Right now, Lord, I just pray in faith that we would picture ourselves with uh, our foot on the neck of that thing, Lord. In the neck of that thing, Lord, that, that area where we need victory, Lord, in faith, we, we just declare your victory over that area. And we thank you, Jesus, it's because of you. Because you hung on a cross, because you died in our place, because God raised you from the dead and you saved us. And Jesus, we thank you for the power that is in your blood. We thank you, Jesus, for the punishment you bore in your body. And Lord, this morning we just uh, remember the cross and we're so thankful, Lord. We're thankful, God, to come to the table of the Lord to share together the cup, which represents your blood, the, the bread, which represents your body, and to say, man, we're sharing a meal because we're in a covenant relationship with the King of heaven. And so, Jesus, we thank you that you invite us to the table and that we can partake of you because your true life, your true food, your true drink, and you truly love us. And Lord, we just remember that this morning. Remember your great love for your church, for your people. Thank you for that which you bore in your body for our sin. Let's partake of the bread together. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. We thank you, Jesus. Lord, we thank you for this cup which represents your blood. Poured out for us, Lord, your blood that cleanses us of every sin. Lord, again, just as we stand in your presence together, we pray that you'd search our hearts, Lord, that you'd reveal wickedness in our hearts, God, that you would forgive us that you would lead us to the place of victory over that thing, Lord. Thank you that we are washed in the blood, that our salvation is not because of what we do, but because of what you've done. It's in your blood. And so, Lord Jesus, thank you. We remember today the cross. We remember your blood poured out for us. We remember your love. Let's partake of the cup. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, God. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Your word tells us that in participating at the table with you, we proclaim your death until you come again. And Lord, we're looking forward to your coming. We pray that. Come, Lord Jesus. Come for your bride. Come for your church. God, this morning, I just pray your grace upon your people. Lead them from victory to victory for your glory and for your name. I pray your grace would be poured out upon them in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.